0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you to everyone who has been instrumental in keeping this show going. We would love it if you take a moment now to be someone who can subscribe as well and support the show. You'll get some cool merchandise from us and great appreciation and a shout out. Go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to help support it, to help keep it on the air. And a special shout out to the newest people on our list of supporters who give $10 or more a month and who have become supporters within the last six months. Special, special thank you to Maggie Kate, Amy, Nathan, Amy K, Camilla, Richard, Kim, Big Easy Blasphemy, Kendi, Sarah, Stephanie, Nicholas, Leanne, Mike, Sophie, and Sarah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to make sure to mention also that we are able to find out often where the podcast is being listened to. And it's very touching, actually, sometimes to see where it seems to connect with the audience and in what countries it either speaks to the audience for political reasons, social reasons, or psychological reasons. And so while it's being heard all over the world, which is Very touching and moving and powerful. My podcast team and I want to do a special shout out to a couple of countries where we have a lot, a lot of listeners to England, to our listeners in Canada, Germany, Ireland, Russia, Norway, Lithuania, Australia. And Brazil. That is quite a combination of countries, all so different from each other. But there seems to be the need for this kind of subject to be discussed. And we would actually love to hear from you. Feel free to write to us at indoctrination show at gmail.com and let us know what it is that speaks to you in particular from your country, from your perspective, from your experiences, from your history from your needs that are being met through this podcast. Thank you so much. Today, I am very happy to introduce you to our guest, Marilyn Mayo. There's so much that's been happening even this week where the ADL has been talked about in the news, and I'll talk a little bit about that after Marilyn and I finished talking. But Marilyn Mayo is a senior research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. She had been with the ADL for over 24 years, having previously served as the co-director of ADL's Center on Extremism and the Associate Director of Investigative Research at the ADL. Ms. Mayo is an expert on right-wing extremists in the United States, ranging from white supremacists to academic racists to anti-immigrant groups. She often speaks to the media and law enforcement about the activities of hate groups and movements across the country, and she has worked on numerous reports for the Anti-Defamation League and writes regularly for the organization's blog. Ms. Mayo received her B.A. from Barnard College in New York and her M.A. from the City University of New York Graduate Center. She is a native of New York City. And now today, she speaks with all of you. Here's Marilyn now. I am very excited today. To have Marilyn Mayo on the show, who is going to share her wisdom and also about the organization that she works for so closely. And I think it is timely. And I wish an organization like the Anti-Defamation League were not timely at some point, (laughs) like it was not necessary anymore, right? You want to be able to do the kind of work that makes what you're doing not necessary anymore. Same with counseling. Like I'm happy that someone, when they can move on, but it is very much necessary. It has been since it started and even before it started, but even more so now. So Marilyn, do you want to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking?
1: Sure, Rachel. I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today. I'm Marilyn Mayo, and I'm a senior research fellow at ADL's Center on Extremism. And I've been with ADL for about 24 years. I research all forms of extremism but I've worked um, on various uh, conspiracy related movements on white supremacy and other issues
0: I mean I think it's first of all very important that people know that there is this Center for extremism because sometimes people don't know where to turn and I know there's also there's good information that the ADL puts out and for curriculum too for teachers to be able to use for parents to be able to figure out how to talk to their kids about these things. So can you talk a little bit about what the center also provides?
1: Sure. So uh, the Center on Extremism is a wonderful resource. You can find a lot of our material at ADL.org, which is our website. Uh, It lists resources. And one of the most helpful things that I believe the uh, Center on Extremism puts out is our heat map. And that stands for hate, extremism, and terrorism. Basically, it's a searchable database where you can actually go in and search any state or city and see what type of events have happened there, extremist events or incidents or uh, anything like that. It's, it's, I think it's very helpful. So, And then in terms of education, of course, we have a very active and involved education division, and they provide uh, different kinds of material for curriculums for schools across the country. And they deal with all sorts of issues. It's just such a range of issues from how to talk to your children about current events to dealing with bigotry, all kinds of things. So again, the website is very helpful for all that kind of material. Fantastic,
0: Really fantastic. And so now I know the ADL has been around
1: since 1913. That's right. 1913.
0: And you've now been there for a couple decades, so I'm curious. So I guess there are two tracks I'm interested in just in terms of the history, and then I want to find out more about what's happening now. When the ADL began in 1913, it had certain, of course, ideals in mind and a mission in mind, and I wonder if it's changed over time because the nature of the issues have changed over time. What have you seen?
1: Our mission has not changed, actually. Our mission, um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it at the moment, but it is to fight you know, discrimination against the Jewish people, but also to fight for justice for all. So, I mean, you know, essentially that has not changed. What has changed, of course, is the political situations change, the types of groups or the types of extremism we see changes. Some of it goes from decade to decade, um, like white supremacy, which is when the ADL was formed in 1913, one of the reasons that it was formed was that a Jewish man, Leo Frank, had been accused of murdering a young woman. He was innocent of that crime, and he was eventually pardoned by the governor. This is in Georgia. But he was lynched by a mob. So there was the Leo Frank case, but there was also tremendous discrimination against Jews in every facet, really, at that time, in housing, in, in schools, and you know, all sorts of different parts of society. So ADL was created, you know, that that incident may have spurred ADL's creation, but it was also created to deal with the discrimination being faced by Jews. And then its mission, it didn't just see its mission as helping. Just the Jewish community, but all communities that were victims of bigotry and discrimination. And that's really still our mission.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. It's difficult, especially when you see something growing and being able to prevent it is one thing, but being able to educate, being able to warn, being able to help people also anticipate. So that's something I wanted to make sure to talk to you about today because I know that I heard about the insurrection and other issues like it, and that the ADL was repeatedly sending out warnings and information and they were not being heeded. And I don't know how to explain that. I mean, the ADL spokesman who was on CNN afterwards said it in a much nicer way, but basically the message was, we told you so, like <laughs> right? And so why is it not listened to?
1: well you know i think this is a complex issue in ways and i think it's still being examined in particular to what happened on january 6th we did give lots of warnings to law enforcement and leaders we were you know part of our job is to monitor extremism and to be able to inform the community about what's going to happen um and when we expect violence certainly to inform law enforcement and we certainly did believe that there was a big potential for violence on January 6th. Why it wasn't heated, I think, is much more complex. Again, it's still being examined, so I don't know the full story of why it's clear that law enforcement had the intelligence, but why it wasn't addressed, I think that's still being looked at. Why weren't Capitol Police given more support why wasn't national guard deployed sooner what was going on i think those questions you know need to be answered and i think there's been to some degree at uh hearings you know dc is not it's not a part of a state right so they have to get approval to call the national guard from the army and from you know i mean there had to be a lot of um coordination and i think you know there are a lot of questions about why it took so long for there to be a response to help the officers who are clearly, clearly in distress and indicating that.
0: Right. Okay. So then, yes, it is complex. I know there were a lot of players in that scene. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, just in terms of extremism, what are you noticing now? What are some of the groups that people need to be mindful of? And where are these things happening predominantly? Just sort of give a, a sense of the names of the groups and kind of the map around them.
1: I think that what we've seen that is of most concern right now. You know, there are all kinds of groups, obviously, that are of concern to us. You know, white supremacist groups, which range from, let's say, neo-Nazi groups like Adam Waffen, which has been involved in allegedly in five murders in this country, um, and it's part of the accelerationism movement, which are you know Nazis who basically believe that there has to be like chaos in the country in order for there to be a uh, major change and and kind of like a a white revolution. There are also groups like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and militia groups that are anti-government, although they did support Trump to a good degree, but those groups are certainly of concern. I think it has been made very public, both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are being looked at for their role in the insurrection. And then, uh, you know, you also have groups who are promoting lots of conspiracies. And I think this one, that is a lot more complex, but what concerns me very much about what I'm seeing in terms of conspiracies and disinformation is that it's infiltrating into the mainstream. And I think this is something that we're seeing more and more of. As I said, I've done this work for over two decades, and what is of tremendous concern to me is seeing the mainstreaming of ideas that were once on the fringe are seeing more and more of that, and what am what am I talking about? So I'm talking about, of course, QAnon, is one, um, and there are many, um, and I certainly have examples that I can give you. There are many examples of people who are lawmakers who have uh, accepted QAnon or at least don't question it. Also, you had CPAC, you know, which is the Conservative Political Action Conference, but at the same time, you had something called the America First PAC, which was put on by white supremacists, and that. Event, you had a representative from Arizona, Paul Gosar, who went and spoke at that conference. The Republican Party, of which he is a member, did not even condemn his speaking at that event. And I think that's problematic. What I think is happening is that there are a lot of fears, generally, I think, in the population, a lot of uncertainty. And what is taking hold is this incredible distrust. I would say of the government, of uh, the leaders, you have that the anti vax movement, which is kind of melding with the QAnon conspiracy movement, as well as, you know, people who are basically questioning whether any agency of the government can be trusted at all, right? And saying that anything that doesn't fit their views is fake news. Someone listening to me who may actually believe that might right away just say, well, well, she's saying something fake. Many of us live in a social bubble where we're able to get information that we want to hear from the same places. I think that makes things very complicated where, you know, you have people who believe that what they're seeing is true and you have the other side believing what they're seeing is true, but there has to be some kind of objective truth in the world. And yet just don't uh, believe that.
0: Right. I mean, the the word truth has been bandied about and shifted around. And uh, your truth, my truth, as Stephen Colbert calls it, truthiness. And so I do think there is this sort of slippery space in a space that I think should actually be much more rigid and sacred. What is real and what is not, what is true and what is not. Promoting all these pieces of misinformation, it's fine if it's just misinformation, but if it causes you to hate, if it causes you to act, if it causes you to lash out then it's really quite destructive. I think when people do have a distrust and they do think then they're on their own, then that's when they start stockpiling. And that's when they really feel like it's up to them because no one is is watching and no one is protecting them. So it does feel more militaristic than it's been before. I'm Worried also about the desensitization to what would normally sound delusional. And so there's a lot of talk out there and people are talking about the lizard people and other sorts of things. And normally that that would be met with laughter or concern about the other person's mind. But now it's sort of this idea, like you're saying, it's part of the mainstream. So it's become a desensitized part of the lexicon or belief system. It is nerve wracking and worrisome.
1: Yes. And, you know, even um, if you look at what's happening politically right now in terms of the big lie, you know, the idea that the election was stolen through fraud. And even though this was um, examined multiple times by various election workers and then by the courts and they found no fraud, it doesn't seem to matter to, you know, a good chunk of people who believe that there was election fraud. So no matter what, you proved them. And I think the hearings this week that were about the insurrection, you know, statements were made that a statement was made by a uh, lawmaker that these were just like, these were like tourists coming to visit, you know, DC. Oh, right. Yeah. And there was, there was no insurrection. There was no violence. There was yet with our own eyes, we have seen the videos over and over again of the incredible violence. We know that a number of people died because of this violence, so I think the fact that even verifiable information right something that you can see with your eyes that there's absolute proof of that people will dispute that, and I think that is of tremendous concern when something that is clearly verifiable, people will still deny. I agree with you. this is not about something like crazy or obscure, let's say, but but something that literally happened that that we all saw with our own eyes
0: on TV. Which brings me into thinking about society at large being more Orwellian now than I think we're comfortable with. And also that there isn't an end to the confirmation bias, that it just continues like a, it has a snowball effect. And so I think a lot of people are feeling kind of powerless to fight against or to help redirect This thing that seems to be just picking up speed. And you're right, and permeating what used to be on the fringe and and now sort of in general society. But I do think that, you know, it reminds me of this woman, uh, Dr. Margaret Singer, who was a professor at UC Berkeley who had studied mind control and brainwashing. And, And she said, within a cultic system, you learn to deny the evidence of your senses. And I think about that phrase a lot now not within necessarily a cult, although people have asked me if I thought the last administration behaved like a cult. I mean, it, you know, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, you can't, you can't avoid that. But I think, I wonder then from your perspective with the groups that you're watching, I mean, I don't know how much you feel you can share, of course, about what you gleaned, but what are the ones you mentioned, the three percenters, you mentioned Oath Keepers and others. What are some other groups that people should be aware
1: of? You know, I want to just say that we don't just look at groups per se. We look at individuals as well. And and of course, not just any individual, but an an individual that has extreme ideology or potential for violence or things like that. I mean, there are more general groups that I think, again, this is not about violence, and I want to be clear about that. But there's a group that calls itself the Groypers, for example, which is led by a young man, uh, Nick Fuentes, who's a white supremacist. He denies that he's a white supremacist. He calls himself a Christian conservative. But if you listen to his podcast, many of the ideas that he promotes are basically white nationalism, but he kind of uh, does two things to sort of have plausible deniability. One is he's a little more careful in how he presents his ideas a little bit. And then after he'll say something quite racist or anti-Semitic, he'll say, of course, I'm only kidding. He's not kidding. He was in Charlottesville in August 2017, you know, and I can mention different names of groups, but I think it's more that obviously there are lots of, of different types of movements. You know, I've mentioned already um, that there are white supremacist groups that are, they range. And I think that's really important to point out. So you have you know neo-Nazis like Adam and you have the base, uh, you have Fuhrer Creek. These were groups that had international connections that were basically online, but then members took real world action, clearly were involved in various, allegedly involved in a number of murders. You also have the anti-government groups, like, as I said, like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Militia Groups, and these groups basically don't support the government. And many of them, one of the um, Oath Keepers' goals is to actually attract Veterans and law enforcement into their ranks because they want people who are trained and who can train other people. So, you know, we're discovering, I mean, it was just discovered yesterday that an active duty soldier, and I'm not saying that person was an oathkeeper, I don't believe he was, but, you know, he was involved in the insurrection. And there were a number of other veterans who were involved in the insurrection. So it's more important to talk about movements where people are attracted to these groups that you know, are anti-government, that are very mistrustful of the government. And you know, there are many other, like we look at, for example, um, the incel movement, which is, which is a misogynistic movement. And there've been a number of people who defined incels. Incels are basically, stands for involuntary celibates who feel that you know, they should not be denied sex and that you know, like women owe them sex and, and that, you know, when they don't get what they want, you know, there's been, there've been a number of murderous rampages by incels, both in the U.S. and Canada, where a number of people were killed. So you have, you have folks like that. Then you have people who, um, you know, one of the things we've seen the rise of over the last few years are people who are not in groups and yet they influence each other. And this does come, come out of the U.S. as well. So you had Dylan Roof, who did not belong to any particular group, but he carried out horrible massacre in church in South Carolina, and you know killed a number of people during a prayer service. And then he influenced other people, right? I mean, he's seen as a saint by white supremacists online. And so then you had Brenton Tarrant in New Zealand, who's influenced by acts like that, and wrote his own man- he wrote a manifesto, and you know went on this killing spree where he filmed it, killed fifty one people in mosques in New Zealand. He influenced John Ernest, who killed the people in Poe the, at the synagogue. He also influenced Patrick Cruzius in, in El Paso, Texas, who killed a number of people at a Walmart. So what I'm trying to say is you don't need people who belong to groups who basically influence others due to their actions. And Bretton Tarrant, he live-streamed his massacre so he could influence others to take action. And no one had he was he wasn't on anyone's map, right? But he was influenced by everything he was reading. Uh, you know the Great Replacement theory. He called his manifesto "The Great Replacement." That was written by you know the Great Replacement. It's been around in one form or another. It's the idea that one group of people is being replaced by another. In this case, that like white Europeans are being replaced by non-white immigrants. There's a an essay in a book written by a French writer. Um, you know Renard Camus uh, who, who wrote about the Great Replacement has influenced the modern day, you know, white supremacist movement. There's still traditional white supremacist groups like the Klan, you know, they haven't gone, they're quite small now, quite small. There are racist skinhead groups, you know, there's the white power music scene, which still is an international scene. But what I think is interesting now, like you know, when I first started doing this work in the 90s, it was more limited what kind of groups you could join, right? You could join like a neo-Nazi group, a racist skinhead group, maybe, or or maybe the Klan. But now white supremacy has really been expanded to include groups like the groipers where most of the young people are college educated, quite articulate, can basically stand up and in a suit and tie and and argue points quite well. Uh, it's not like this old-time view of of, of you know what a white supremacist looks like, right? I mean, it's, there's a lot more choice for people now. You don't have to like shave your head and have tattoos, you know, but believe in white supremacist ideology and belong to a group that looks like your local college frat. I think those are the kinds of changes that we've seen that are really important.
0: Yes, it's incredible. So I think you know, similar to and I'm going back to this idea of cults, well, p- people will say, "You know, are cults still around?" And now it's more talked about there have been some shows, and other people are really getting the message they're still around. But part of the questioning comes from them not being so obvious. So they're not necessarily wearing orange robes and passing out things in the airport. They're going to be the the multi-level marketing company that you got involved in, or they're going to be, your boss actually, who gets you into something and you were not expecting that to be happening. I remember I was doing an intervention to help a family's daughter who's in a bad situation. During a little break, the father who ran a big company was college educated, said, you know, I just feel like, you know, there's so many things that just end up that people do that end up just sort of biting them in the ass is what he said. (laughs) And he said, it's like, it's like the Jews starting the Holocaust. And I said, I'm sorry, did you, did you just say the Jew-? and he's wearing a suit and he has a briefcase because he came from his business meeting to be involved in this intervention. Did you just say that Jews starting the Holocaust? He said, yeah, well, it happened because of the Jews. And I said, you know that that's like saying that black people are responsible for slavery. And, you know, it's a total turnaround. <laughs> Of victim blaming. And he said, no, 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 I have books. And he told me about all these books that he had learned it from. But you would never have known from looking at him that he had these virulent, anti-Semitic, and he also turned out to be racist, and they were often going hand in hand. But no, if we hadn't had that brief discussion, I wouldn't have known. And yes, it is, it's chilling, actually, when that happens, because you're not expecting it.
1: And I think something that's happened over the last number of years is that people feel much freer, let's say, openly express bigoted views. I think we've seen that very clearly. um, and, And that's troublesome as well. Yeah, very much so.
0: I'm worried about this trend just continuing and also with the momentum. And you're right, there is a basic distrust. And just because there's this confirmation bias and closed loop of information that people are getting confirmation from people in-house. So they think that their facts are facts or it's been proven. I'm thinking also sociologically in terms of indoctrination and being pulled into extremist views. I've talked to some people who have left the Klan, have left other white supremacist groups, and they talked about what drew them in. In some cases, they were born into it and other people were drawn in through a series of events and then were able to disconnect from that, realizing that's actually not who they are. And I wonder with the work that you do, if you've had a chance to talk to people about what pulled them into the fray and what helped them to to leave it.
1: There have been a few. Um, I don't really do that part of the work. There are other organizations that focus on people who have left. For a lot of the people who join those groups, particularly at a young age, um, that they're looking for a sense of belonging and there's um, a certain acceptance and a feeling of, again, not just belonging, but like the family that you now are part of that accepts you. And I think that's that's very alluring, particularly for young people. That is one of the things that pulls people in and keeps them there. What makes them leave generally is when they experience kind of like a, I don't know uh, what psychological word you use exactly, but kind of a disassociation, right? Like where there was a white supremacist who came to speak at ADL and he was saying, he was in a um, like a racist skinhead neo-Nazi group. And then he met some a, a Jewish person who was very kind to him and gave him a job at, at some point. And he realized, well, wait a minute, not all Jews are bad. And that it, it's that kind of break in conditioning where you see like, wait a minute, something I've been told is not necessarily true. That may start the process of bringing people out of that in seeing that what they've been told is not exactly what the reality is and that it, you know uh, these generalizations that are applied to groups of people, you know they're just generalizations and they're not like real a lot of like a lot of the things that are said are just things that people believe because of their ideology. So I think that you know we certainly see that and but it does take a shift. It takes something. To make you shift. Right. And so I
0: think sometimes it's unexpected things. I think I spoke to someone recently who left the Klan because he was treated with compassion by somebody and, and realized that his life had been devoid of that. And so he was very hardened and not expecting someone to really care about him in this way. And it kind of pulled him out. And the person was Hispanic and it pulled him out. There was a woman also, I talked to who was raised in the skinhead movement. She was especially involved in uh, attacks against people who are gay and trans and went to jail and she fell in love with a woman in jail and that did it.
1: Wow. I think another really interesting story that has certainly been in the media is Derek Black, who's the son of Don Black. Don Black is a white supremacist, a long, long-time white supremacist. And he runs Stormfront, which is one of the biggest white supremacist forms in the world. And his son was raised in that world. His godfather was David Duke, a former Klan leader. And he, as a child, and I remember this because you know I was working at ADL at that time, he had his own section on this racist site for children. Oh, for children. For children, it was for children. So he was raised in this environment and then he went to college and he found that he was being shunned by people. And some Jewish students invited him to a Shabbat dinner. And he went and he was amazed to see that they treated him, you know, actually quite nicely. And they had discussions and they invited him again and he started going. And through these discussions, he began to understand how he was brought up and he's completely renounced white supremacy. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting story.
0: Incredible. OK, so I know with with the time that we have left, I want to be able to learn from you about what uh, what other information you have and also about government involvement and what can be done to protect people more than I think people realize they needed to be protected, because now there a lot of people are feeling more vulnerable because they now have seen so much hate released in public ways.
1: I think it's really, really important that the government play a role in countering extremism. And when I say the government needs to be involved, what I mean by that is that, first of all, they need to understand what's happening, right, in terms of radicalization, how it's happening, why it's happening, how it's done online. And- there's, for example, we're looking at extremism in the military. There is extremism in the military. I don't think it's as you know widespread as some people think, but there is some. So what that means is that the first part is knowledge and like what's happening. And then I think we need programs to counter extremism. And I think that's a little difficult. You know, part of it is education. Part of it is trying to basically reach people when they're young, I think is, it's really important. But I, and so, you know, ADL, for example, has, you know, we have something called a world of difference, which is an educational program that brings students together to talk that, and they deal with differences and what, you know, what that means. There's also, um, you know, we train various groups about extremism, so they understand what it is. And when there is, when there is hate in a community, for example, It's really, really important for politicians to speak out. One of the things that happened, you know, the last few years is that whether it was perceived or real, there was people perceived that certain bigotries were condoned. That's quite problematic. So, you know, speaking out against hatred, against extremism, against racism, anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ, hatred, all of those things, it's really important that it comes from high up so that people understand that it's not acceptable. You know, I think that's really important. The other thing, and I you know, I know that you deal with this, obviously, in, in your work, is I think in terms of the conspiracies that are taking hold, and there are so many right now, the two that stand out to me, obviously, are QAnon, uh, the anti-vax, and the election fraud. One of the things that we're seeing is that there've been a number of events since the election around the country that are bringing these folks together. For example, in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, a few weeks ago, there was a conference that brought together some of the major QAnon influencers like Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. He's full in on QAnon now, he's taken the QAnon oath. There's a video of him taking the oath. So meaning, you know, uh, he says, you know, where we go one, we go all. That's something all the time now, that's a QAnon reference. But Lynn Wood, you know, the lawyer who tried to overturn the election, you know, we're working with Trump and, and Sidney Powell, you know, these are all people who are going to conferences. There's one coming up in Dallas, Memorial Day weekend. And it brings together all these people and it creates this environment where these conspiracies, again, about like, you know, COVID was created. Uh, in a lab, and purposely by Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci to control people and to kill them, and or the idea that you know Trump is actually still president, but this will all be revealed, and all of these things kind of start melding together, and you get people who believe that they're part of a very large community, and and you know it is relative. You know, I mean, it's still the fringe, but it's still uh, you have people involved in this community who work directly with officials and the Trump administration, right, to promote some of the ideas that I'm talking about. And what I mean by that is, you know, like if you, I'm talking about the election fraud theory, it gets all mixed in with QAnon, it gets mixed in with the anti-vax stuff. And so you've got, like I said, this community that gets together, you know, tracks hundreds of people, uh, maybe even thousands of people, if you include in-person, online, all of that. And um, it grows, right? And they believe that they're actually making inroads. And what worries me is that actually, we know that there are a number of people who ran in 2020 who were QAnon supporters. There are people who are going to run in 2022 and probably in 2024 who also support those conspiratorial beliefs. And so I think we need to be aware of this as we see these things happening and, and to speak out against the kind of conspiracy and the disinformation, the narratives that are actually a defeating democracy because they're, you know, it's just based on false information. And I think you probably know this better than anyone. A lot of people who believe these things, you can't just tell them it's not true. They don't believe it. So I think that, you know, we have to find ways, and and I I don't have an easy answer for that. I'm I'm asked that, you know, what do you do? How do you talk to people who believe this? I actually have a close friend who is an anti-vax person, Uh, no matter. I say it doesn't it really doesn't matter, you know. And even though this person has known me for decades, they still believe others that they're reading online than more than they believe me, which is very interesting, right? Like here's someone you've known for years and uh, a trusted friend, but you're going to believe these folks who come online and uh, on the internet and release, you know, videos, something else. So I think this is a struggle, and and I think we need to come up with ways to deal with this. And I don't think it's easy. I don't have an easy solution of how to convince people who are so convinced that they're right. There's an expression that's used in the QAnon community, variations of do your own research. And so when you question these folks, they kind of look at you and they they shake them and they go, ha, I've done my research. Oh, it's the bubble that I'm talking about. The research that they're doing are the same people who believe what they believe. It's not looking at various points of view and trying to come to some conclusion based on various things you're reading. It's just reading the same information that's circulating within that community. Very hard to overcome that. And yet I think we're going to have to in order to get to some different place and where people are open. And again, this, this is this speaks to all sides. I'm not talking about one side. I think everyone has, Gotten into some kind of you know bubble of just looking at um, or accepting views that they believe and not wanting to listen to the other side. and you know this is something that's become part of our society right now, the polarization and, it, and it's making things very difficult in terms of and, and you see it politically on every level. So how do people come together? How do they change that? I think we're in a very difficult time in this country where that's not easy to do at all.
0: Right. No, it's not easy to do. I think something that uh, has been troubling for a lot of people is also the lack of diplomacy and that we can't have the conversation.
1: That's right. I think you see that all the time, that there is no diplomacy a lot of the times at all. It wasn't always like this, you know, um, looking at the causes. I mean, I think social media has played a a large role in this as it allows people to network and interact on a larger scale with people who believe what they believe and give them proof because they found it on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes it hard to sort of break away from all of that to see other points of view.
0: What I'm seeing is that there's this sense of weakness that if you don't take one side or the other, you are weak as opposed to being maybe a reasoned thinker where you're looking at both sides. It's interesting too, because In some of the sessions I've had with families where there's been this great divide now and a lot of tension, there is a lack of acceptance or even a lack of patience with hearing the phrase or accepting the phrase, let's just agree to disagree, that there's no such thing now. That's very interesting to me.
1: I agree. I've seen that myself. And I think that that is an example of how far this polarization has gotten because not only... um, Can they not say, you know, let's agree to disagree. You become the enemy. And that's quite dangerous when you're perceived as an enemy just because you don't agree with the view of another person. And that that works on both ends, by the way. It's not, again, not just talking about one group. Right. And I suppose, too, with
0: the word enemy, then you can feel justified with becoming more hostile because you have to defend yourself from the enemy. So then the advice is a good one about speaking up. I think people are are worried about doing that and they don't want to be the lone voice and they don't want to be the first voice. And so the the more people who can speak up the better, which would be really quite wonderful. I think also with this uh world of difference program, just being able to have people connect with each other or potentially meet each other and seeing what that does to do what you're saying, sort of like put a wedge in this thinking and have hopefully the domino effect. Like a man who I spoke with who was part of the incel movement, actually part of Migtal, Men Going Their Own Way, that was part of incel, right? And he had his own website. And, and then he met a woman who was really nice. <laughs> and uh, he dropped out of the community. And then he was hated by the community as a traitor.
1: Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. It was very interesting.
0: All right. And so then what else can people do? How can they find you? I know that you gave the website Ahead of time, is there any other place people can look for information that you're providing online that the ADL is providing out there?
1: I think the website is the best place to find uh, information. You know, obviously, we have a Twitter account. I'm on Twitter, as are many of my colleagues, and you know uh, we certainly tweet out information. so if you you know if you follow um myself, but really some more of my colleagues are even much more active on Twitter. Uh, Oren Siegel is the head of the Center on Extremism. Uh, he's a good person to follow on ADL. My colleague Mark Piccavage is uh, another expert on um, right-wing extremism. You can find him on Twitter. Joanna Mendelson is another colleague who's active on Twitter. So, and that is the place where you find we tweet out the newest material. If you're on the ADL Twitter account or, or any of the colleagues I've mentioned, you'll see any of our new material that's come out about new trends things that we're seeing, uh, concerns, all those kinds of things.
0: So if you're involved in government, want to know what's going on, if you want to know how to have the conversation with your kids, if you want to know what to watch out for, or if you're an educator, this is a wonderful resource for so many people in so many different areas. And I value the work that you do so greatly to have your finger on the pulse of what's happening and what's growing and also to deal with your own reaction to it because it can feel overwhelming as it grows. And also it moves away from being on the fringe, as you're saying, because then it just feels rampant.
1: Well, I'm very fortunate to work with wonderful colleagues um, and we help uh, and support each other in doing this work because it is very difficult work. It is. Uh, when you work with a great bunch of people who are interested like you in, in, you know, making an impact and fighting extremism and hate, I think it you know makes it worth it in the end. Wonderful.
0: Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And I hope to be able to talk to you again at some point as, you know, we'll see as things develop. But again, thank you for everything that you shared and what you do on a daily basis.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Appreciate it.
0: One more thing before you go, thank you so much to Marilyn, not only for the interview, but for all the work that she is doing and all the work that the people at the ADL and other organizations like it are doing round the clock. It is so frustrating that they have information that other people might not want to look at and that our government even ignores at their own peril, actually. And so I find it also interesting that as we're talking about conspiracy theories and QAnon, that because of the work I do, you can actually now, I think, look up QAnon. And because of the amount of interviews I've done or the kind of counseling I'm doing, helping people who have been dealing with it, my name sometimes pops up in connection with QAnon. And I think, "Mm, I don't know if that's a good thing. But I also remember thinking that I was going to write the outro, this one more thing before you go. Soon after, I spoke to Marilyn, and I spoke to Marilyn already a month or two ago. And the interview is just coming out this week. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I wait? Why don't I wait till right before it comes out to write the outro? Because I have a feeling, unfortunately, that something else is going to happen between then and now that i'm going to want to talk about in the outro something happening with the government something happening with different conspiratorial thinkers something happening in general in the world that i want to be able to mention during this outro and then it happened so on monday september 27th 2021 at the beginning of this week matt gates tweeted tucker Carlson is correct About replacement theory as he explains what is happening to America. The ADL is a racist organization. That's what it says. I thought, all right, yep. I had a feeling because of all that's happening right now that something was going to happen and something happened this week. And what is replacement theory? It comes from this idea of the quote unquote great replacement, it's a conspiracy theory that says people of color are going to be replacing white populations. In fact, they're trying to replace white populations. It's been popular on the far right for some time, and it's now making its way into mainstream GOP talking points, news articles, interviews, etc. So one of the things that happens when we interview someone like Marilyn and other people who do this work is that while there are new issues that come up all the time, there is a kind of a consistency, unfortunately, of coming back to the same homes, coming back to the same mm, xenophobia and racism and anti-Semitism, et cetera. And what we have then is we have this scene that seems to replay over and over and over again. And this is why these organizations exist, to counter this, to keep watch on this. Because while the names of organizations like the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys might be newer names, newer, relatively speaking, still the messages are the same. And so we, I think, will always need to have organizations that are watching And not only watching, but doing, educating, trying to alert people, trying to let them know what's happening, even if they don't listen, unfortunately, but still. And so it is entirely important if you have an opportunity to learn from watchdog organizations to find out what they are keeping track of so you know what to watch out for. Or if you want to help support them, support them to keep them going one of the things that I wanted to be able to mention is how, you know, there is this expression of uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And when you're dealing with human nature and a certain part of human nature, when you're dealing with what I think is related to anxiety and anxiety about change, anxiety about difference, a paranoia that comes from This idea that if you let people get incorporated into your community, they're then going to take over and you're not going to be able to preserve something that you think should be preserved in its pure and true form, even though there's no such thing as a pure and true form of anything really, uh, since civilization has begun. And knowing also that it's not a problem. People don't have to be in whatever you consider to be a pure form, also because it doesn't exist. And that if there are going to be more Black people than white people or more Hispanics than English speakers here in California, that's okay. And that might be as it should be. And to not then worry, because I, again, I think this is not necessarily based in fact, but rather based in anxiety. Don't worry that your world is going to be over. Maybe your world that is steeped in a sense of the need for superiority will be over. But again, I think that's a good thing. So I want to finish with a quote that is good to remember by Aldous Huxley. That men do not learn very much from the lessons of history. Is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. So let's learn from history and let's be smarter moving forward. And let's be wiser and let's be a little more relaxed and accepting if we can. And know that we don't have to keep people out in order to preserve the life as we know it. We can actually incorporate them, be expansive be inclusive and know that that helps us to become enriched, not less than. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at indoctrination show at gmail.com and for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination